Welcome to Draft Broadcast, a platform through which we will explore in depth the practice of artists, curators, writers and other practitioners to open understanding about where their work comes from, why they do what they do and what it means to produce work today. I'm Ned McConnell, curator at Draft, and I'll be hosting these broadcast sessions. Today I'm joined by artist Carolina Chantre, whose work is represented in the David Roberts collection. We invited Caroline to select a work other than her own from the David Roberts collection as the starting point for this conversation. She chose a work by Belinda de Broeker. Caroline Chantre is a London-based artist born in 1969 in Toulouse, France. Her solo exhibition at the Cap C Musée d'Art Contemporain de Bordeaux opens on 15th of December 2020. In 2014, she was artist-in-residence at Camden Arts Centre and is in many international collections, both public and private. She also has upcoming shows in 2021 in Paris at Gallery Art Concept and Kunstmuseum Ravensburg in Germany in March and November, respectively. Belinda de Broeker was born in 1964 in Ghent, Belgium, where she now lives and works. She is influenced by the Flemish Renaissance and draws on legacies of old European masters and Christian iconography, as well as mythology and cultural lore. She works with casts made from wax, animal skins, hair, textiles, metal and wood. The work we'll be discussing today from the David Roberts collection is Lost 2 from 2007. The sculpture is made from horse skin, epoxy, metal and wood and measures roughly 98 by 151 by 164 centimetres. It's made up of a wooden table that has a domestic feel with a horse carcass draped over one corner and the animal covers roughly one quarter of the tabletop. Hi, Caroline. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Ned. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Great, great. Yeah. Good. So yeah, we're going to talk a bit about Belinda de Broeker from the David Roberts collection. And, you know, I've just done a little intro there, but I wonder if you could just tell us how you first came across the work and de Broeker in general. Yeah, I think the first piece I saw by her is maybe not even the piece I chose, but looked more like an unskinned body. I think uh, her work is really striking and is certainly a touching a darker tone in one's fantasy or in my fantasy. The kind of skinned bodies, they are defined and undefined at the same time, they're appealing. But the horse piece I chose, which is called Lost 2, is even more tapping into um, the uncanny, which is an area I'm also really interested in. I've seen it more than once, and there is also more than one aversion, um, if you can say so. It's a body of work. I've seen it in the Venice Biennale, and I think I've seen it at Hauser Wood and Saatchi Gallery, or one of the two. I might mix up which piece I've seen there, if I'm really honest. So it's in my visual memory. It's actually without location, which also says something about the piece. Yes. Obviously, she works with these very recognisable and memorable materials. You kind of have a visceral reaction to them, because it's obviously using the kind of flesh and skin often of animals, which is quite striking, I suppose. Maybe you can talk a bit about what first attracts you to her work or what kind of draws you in with her practice. So there are different layers, I guess. So when you enter a gallery space and would encounter that work, and that's how it happened for me, you instantly recognize it as a horse, but you also instantly feel that something isn't quite right. So when you approach it, it's, as I said, there are different versions, but uh, for sure it feels like a horse without a spine. 
without anything solid in it, but still it has the main features. In a way, a simplified version as well. First of all, it's really highly surreal and um, also dreamlike, rather nightmarish maybe. So I think this weird area of uh, recognition, familiarity and strangeness, something I find really interesting in general. I think now in robotic area, it's something that's been described as uncanny valley. And this is when you uh, make a replicate of something, when it's kind of badly made, just before it's good made again, it kind of dips in what it does to us. This piece also is exactly in that area, so you feel quite greasy and uncomfortable. I think with the work that you've chosen, Lost 2 as well, and, you know, with a lot of her other work too, that kind of uncanniness comes through from, like, you know, this horse is on a table that could be a kind of kitchen table or something. So there's this real familiarity and kind of repulsion that you have because you can sort of imagine it draped over your own kitchen table or something. Maybe you can talk a bit about how that links to your practice, because I know that a lot of the things that you've made in the past are also kind of domestic scale, or you could imagine them within your own sphere, I suppose. I think the area I'm really interested in in regards to that piece and where my work also maybe sometimes is located is this kind of between attraction and repulsion. And I find this is sometimes quite close uh, next to each other. So obviously her piece is really well made and it's beautiful. It's also maybe a young horse, so there is this attraction. But of course, it's a surreality and it's anyway dead and parts are maybe missing. Um, then also uh, is a bit freakish and I quite like those in between um, locations. Also, what I said before, this lack of a spine. I think this piece especially I feel is also dealing with gravity somehow and the lack of it, or at least that's maybe what I project into it. So more in my ceramic work than in my textile work. I also like to play with gravity uh, because I try to define it by erecting really thin pieces made from clay. And then, of course, they give way again. And this kind of sagging that is afterwards frozen in the kiln or fired kind of gives it maybe sometimes a certain liveliness because this kind of sagging of skin or human having to obey the order of gravity kind of makes it human-like. In my work um, is also uh, playing a big part is anthropomorphism. And I did look it up because I knew we would speak about it. I didn't look that word up that I know, but the corresponding word for animal alike. And it doesn't really exist. I mean, there are things like zoomorphism, but it's, that's when humans look like animals and that's not the case itself. Or then it comes to bestiality, but bestiality I find too charged, actually, because the beauty in her work, and that's what I like also people to discover in my work, is that you don't put words into someone's mouth or ideas in the head. It's your own discovery. Yes, yes. I mean, I think there's something within her work and within yours as well that this, I suppose, and this feeds into what you were just saying about there not really being a kind of satisfying definition of this connection between the kind of animal version of anthropomorphism, that this kind of flattening of a hierarchy between humans and animals and how one is treated very different from the other, but really there's a lot more subtlety, I suppose, in the differences, or there should be more subtlety than the kind of structures that we humans have built up in terms of the difference between animal life and human life. I think certainly within De Broeker's work, there's a lot of 
I think tenderness as well and pathos around the treatment of these animals. You can feel a kind of vulnerability and a fragility that she's thinking about when dealing with these animals, when actually your first reaction is quite a sort of visceral revulsion almost to them. Mm. I wonder if the difference between your ceramic work and your fabric work, for example, maybe you can talk a little bit about the differences between them, because I think, you know, the fabric works, I think to me, often feel more domestic, more kind of like they could be things that one would find in someone's house, whereas the ceramics feel more like figures or that they maybe have more of a personality or character about them, whereas the fabric works feel more like they're kind of objects, I think. Yeah. So the tapestries, I did start making from around 2000 onwards, and it did come from the idea originally from this strangers in a familiar setting, like the a la Freud, the uncanny, if you like. So out of intense mauling drawings, I started translate large hand-tufted woolen objects, carpets mm -hmm. that at the, in the beginning were maybe more painting-like, now they became more sculpture. But this domestic material was a conscious choice to begin with. Now I don't think so much about it anymore. But um, I guess there, um, 10 years after that, I started working with clay. out came out of a different desire. I see myself as a sculptor, but I'm always between a 2D and 3D, two-dimensional, three-dimensional work. Also, the tapestries ended up hanging always on the wall. So I really wanted to pierce more into space. And started out making masks out of discarded drawings, out of paper. But paper didn't have a long lifespan as a sculpture material. Then I started working with clay, first time in my life. And the way I use it up to this very day is still quite paper-alike. I chose it for different attributes, uh, this material. It allowed me to work very thin, but if I don't break it, more long-lasting than paper. But it's also like a recorder clay. It really records everything on its surface, not just animism, but also this animalism is something that interests me. And I started working more and more with it. So for me, they're all some kind of creatures alike in a way. But I don't see the tufted work as necessarily as more domestic because now often I create my own habitat, my own scenario, and they are juxtaposed with each other. So they lost that domestic feeling for me a bit now. Yes, yes. Just to change tact a little bit, I think this is something that is evident, obviously, in De Broeke's work around collecting. You know, she obviously uses these kind of found carcasses or she has to go out and source them, but also, you know, the table in Lost 2 that we're talking about now. Do you collect things? Are there things that you collect in your studio as kind of reference points or inspiration? Well, apart from the obvious thing that artists these days, you choose a lot of things on your mobile phone just by taking pictures. And I like to go to um, a wide range of museums and from ethnological collections to niche museum, but it's talking about in, in physical form. Less in the studio, maybe, uh, or you don't even see it as a collection. You you take some, yeah, it's more like snippets and books, of course. Otherwise, I um, it's more maybe at home. I have this collection of Japanese small plastic figures. So I did a residency in Japan, in Tokyo, in 2015 with AIT, this artist initiative Tokyo. And there are those small um, plastic uh, reproductions of 
be science fiction movies figures, figurines. They are called kaiju. So in, in films, they would appear in, I guess, Godzilla size, but the remakes of them are quite small. They have quite a big collection of them. And also weird things you find on flea markets. And again, often they are attractive and repulsive in the same time. I, I really don't mind plastic at all. So I have quite a lot of weird plastic stuff or glass objects can be anything. Yeah, that's something that's all around my house more than the studio. I guess the influence of that is more by osmosis or through some kind of indirect influence on your practice. I'm intrigued by the Japanese figures because that feels like quite a specific kind of thing to collect, I suppose. What was it that kind of attracted you to those or, you know, when you were over in Japan, was it something that you knew of before or did you come across it when you were there? Um, I guess both. I mean, I've seen one or two. I was staying in Okamonichu, which is close to Akihabara, which is a district where all the anime is happening and they, they're like um, stores eight stories high, um, full with figurines, cross-dressing, dressing up stuff and collecting cards. Yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, there was a whole universe. I knew a bit about them, but um, they are just really inspirational and highly fantastical. There are snails that are houses in, inside. They often have double lives. They have also some kind of coexistences, something I really am very interested in and that is a constant in my reoccurrent thing in my work so that the bodies have to share two entities or they have multifunctions or they are half machine, half organic, half something else. Also, they just look great and they are, yeah really colorful as well i mean i guess that idea of two lives or two existences you know is something that's i know is very prevalent in your work i know you're interested in kind of mythology and cultural law in a similar way to belinda de Broeke is i wonder if there's any other direct things that that influence your work from say i don't know the, the history of sculpture or craft or painting that's quite specific because you know mythology is quite a kind of specific area i suppose to draw on but i wonder if there's any other areas that that you kind of think about when you're thinking about making work yeah i don't know if it's necessarily all comes from art history but talking about art history i think at least at the time one like real uh, re-rediscovery was a uh, german expressionism for example emil nolde and all those people were like really tapping directly into feelings like angst or um yeah, strong emotions and like really directly bringing those into their, into their work more than depicting or translating one thing into another that really had a direct influence in my work. Started making lino cuts and from then onwards, my tapestries became definitely more rough and more object or being like than like a reference to painting in terms of display and design. I, I've, like many, I guess uh, I'm a fair, also a big fan of Sotsas and the Memphis group. And I think display became more and more important part of my work. And it's really good when you later spend almost as much time to describe the table, the horse of from Berlin, the is uh, lying on than the horse itself, because I forgot speaking about it, because you just take it for granted. But it's half of the work, this gentleness, almost sleeping position. So it has a lot to do with this warm um, domestic table. So the contextualization of their own work is really also important for me. So I also um, look at that. And 
I think I have quite a few inspirational areas coming from popular culture, maybe as much as art history or craft history. Well, craft history, I didn't study textile or anything. I kind of over this, let's say, conceptual way of thinking at the time, but the combination of liking to work with my hands. I did my MA at Goldsmiths and I asked the textile department if I could use those facilities. And of course, once you start using this material, you look differently at other people's work, uh, using maybe more craft-like techniques as well. But it's not really a direct reference or influence. No. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And yes, look forward to, you've got lots of exciting things coming up next year and your show's about to open in what, five days, I think yeah, you said. CRPC, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really great. I could install it even myself. That's great. I mean, in a year like this, that's a, a wonderful thing, I think. I agree. Good luck with that. And yeah, thanks again for coming on. <laughs> <laughs>